In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Social media platforms have a business model. That model is you. The disturbing reality is because you are their customer, you are at risk of falling victim to the algorithm. Mental health is big business. Self-diagnosis videos are targeting a vulnerable population. On today's podcast, we discuss the TikTok approach to self-diagnosis. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. McFillin and at drmcfillin.com. I am going to be hosting a webinar on October 21st, Friday, October 21st at 12.30 Eastern Time. You can register that through drmcfillin.com. And it's going to be on what you're not being told about antidepressants. It's going to be a real deep dive into the science and the history. So for those who are on antidepressants, considering being placed on antidepressants or have a family member who's on antidepressants, rarely, rarely do we get informed consent. And hopefully in an hour webinar, it can provide a lot of valuable information for people to make an informed decision. Can you keep it to one hour? Probably not. My, my <laughs> guess is it's going to go over an hour. <laughs> good morning, fellas. It's good to see you. Good morning. You know, was reflecting back at my time in graduate school, both in my master's program and before I went into my doctoral program, we would take these psychopathology courses where you'd be exposed to the DSM. And the professors would always talk about this phenomenon where everyone would start diagnosing themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you start going through the DSM, you know, almost every single symptom is experienced to some degree in the human experience. You know, it's always to like what extent and uh, it's impairment in, in functioning. And when you like look back, people didn't really have that much widespread exposure to what a mental illness or a mental health diagnosis actually was. It was restricted to those who are the professionals. They knew the criteria. They knew the research. And through time, they could get to know somebody and understand their patterns, their way of thinking, any behaviors or so forth that could be problematic and interfering with their life. And therefore, you would attain a diagnosis and receive some form of treatment. The ultimate goal always is it's grounded in some form of like evidence uh, base where clinicians can make clinical decisions and, and take a person through a course of treatment in some way. Well, those times are over, fellas. It reminds me of a story, and this was years back. I was working with this precocious teenager who certainly was struggling with her own you know, personal identity development. She was on the younger end, very, very bright. Family problems and a number of things. And she came to me in a session, you know, kind of laughing that she got three more diagnoses from her psychiatrist. And, you know, I kind of questioned, you know, what was the nature of the meeting and uh, what diagnosis did you receive? You know, trying to assess like the purpose and function of this. And she told me that she was on the internet and like doing a lot of research about how to get a diagnosis of like OCD. So she kind of played it out with her, mm. with her psychiatrist and the psychiatrist gave her a number of checklists and assessment measures. You know, probably the entire appointment was no more than 40 minutes, probably less than 30 minutes. And the scary thing about it was that she received new prescription drugs. So she was laughing because she totally manipulated the system. Yeah, she just manipulated the She thought the it was doctor. a joke. The whole thing's a joke. It was a, it was a joke to her. Now, I, I think there was some secondary gain or a, other functions to this. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's somewhat out of the it was somewhat out of the norm at that time for a teenager to be seeking out these diagnoses. She certainly chose to talk to talk to me openly about it in a in a therapy session, so it's not something she was like hiding. Um so I think she had like a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. So she made up some events that happened in her past and started describing symptoms and how it morphed into OCD. And then there was shifts in, in psychiatric drugs and medication. Obviously, 
that was quite concerning to me. And I had to get on the phone and talk to that psychiatrist. Now, I'm not saying this is typical. Usually, you know, most professionals are open and we have conversation. But this particular psychiatrist, for whatever reason, wanted to defend the validity of her diagnoses. The diagnoses that was just provided in a short period of time through checklists. And this was before I started being open on social media about the limitations of the DSM and the psychiatric interview and, and so forth. But it really gave me so much valuable information about what the nature of our healthcare system has evolved to. It's an assembly line in so many ways of like check, checklists and symptoms. And that meeting with the psychiatrist and the diagnosis lacked any real depth or connection or understanding with the nature of the person in front of them. And the, the prescription drugs that were prescribed were off-label prescription drugs for her age range. And I was just absolutely appalled by the arrogance of this medical professional who believed her diagnoses were legitimate. And it got into like questions about stigma or decreasing stigma. And I, you need to believe somebody when they tell you. And no, it's only for the last few years where a number of things have kind of exploded in our society. One of them is the social media app, TikTok. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that I've really ever been on. I think it's really designed for, for young people. You guys might know more about TikTok. Yeah, so I mean, TikTok, you go on and the video plays immediately and it's based off of anything that you enjoy or like. So when you start hitting the heart button, it creates this kind of like algorithm of trends that, and it'll give you more of what you want. Um, basically, it's the epitome of kind of confirmation bias where if I like something and I like the videos and it's going to keep showing me all of those videos and all I have to do is just kind of scroll up, I can get rid of something within like half a second if I don't like it. It's pretty, it's pretty addictive. So then you just keep getting served the ones that you actually watch. Sometimes, and then sometimes, well, now there's... Versions of it. Yep, yeah. versions yeah. Of, of that, absolutely. And it's like constant dopamine hits, right? Like some of them are funny, some of them are interesting, but you end up getting filtered into like areas where I think you have kind of an interest. And what's kind of blown up over the past year has been like certain trends um, around like faking mental illness or describing mental illness. And it's this new phenomenon in the mental health field where if you are not aware of this phenomenon where young people, mostly vulnerable teenagers, are constantly on these apps and they are kind of seeking out like information or they're trying to define themselves and they get kind of caught in that algorithm you're going to, they're going to be exposed to videos and influencers who are pretty much like telling you or diagnosing you with mental illness. So mm -hmm. it's almost like if you just put a search in like, um, you know, if you know, you're diagnosed with bipolar, if, or like, you know, how do you know you have bipolar or, but you might not even have to put that search in from what Kelly's saying is you could someone you can, well, I guess, flip up and eventually stumble upon one of these videos, watch it to completion, and then get served another one very similar because you've watched the previous one to completion. And before you know it, you're, you're stuck in that rabbit hole. No doubt. I mean, I, so I tried to do it yesterday. So for the first <laughs> time, <laughs> I started like putting in these hashtags like bipolar autism and I got exposed so these videos and do you have it? I do. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's actually one of those things where if you were watching it and these are not professionals, <laughs> I mean, these are mostly, these are kids, young people. I'd like but to, I'd like to get into that eventually because there is a business component. Um, and you know, you look at all the social media platforms and I, I think TikTok is one that I think we can, we can dissect a little bit further, but Go ahead, Kelly. But you talked about influencers. If an individual posts one of these videos and all of a sudden gets all these likes, then they start getting these followers. And once you get up to like, I don't know, 5,000 to 10,000 and even more, then you start, keep, you keep making those videos and kids just, they're just on it all the time watching you. And that, that the influencer part is what scares me because mm -hmm. these are not medical professionals. These are not oh, anyone other than just people that have a lot of followers. No, they're actually benefiting off of providing themselves with multiple diagnoses. 
this is like it's called illness appropriation. You know, that's like a search word that was coming up on the internet. Is illness appropriation TikTok's most troubling trend? Whatever, you know, this concept of illness appropriation. So we have a number of these videos. I think the value of this today and being able to, to play these videos is one, I want to alert clinicians. I want to alert parents because we actually have situations where teenagers want to have multiple diagnoses or actually searching out um, the ability to have access to psychiatric drugs, some of them for abuse or others just to potentially validate their own emotional pain or their struggle, fit, fit in with a group. So it opens up a conversation today for us to kind of get grounded in where are we right now in 2022, uh, young people here in the United States, the mental health field, how we kind of respond, what do clinicians need to know, what do teachers need to know, what do parents need to know, and just we'll take it wherever it goes, but we'll have to comment on some of these videos. So we'll have to pop them up and just kind of see where this conversation can, goes. Can we pop one up now just for an example? Yeah. I mean, you, you send a few, but there might be a better one. Some only have like music beds, which is just a Yeah, I tried, to, I tried to filter those out. So like, this one might be. Yeah, yeah. Check, check that one out. Queen Tay Tarot on TikTok. Here's five signs you're probably autistic. Number one. You miss or don't understand when people are being sarcastic or passive aggressive or hinting towards something because you always just plainly say what you mean and you expect everyone else to. Number two, you listen to music everywhere you go or always have headphones in, otherwise you're too overstimulated or overwhelmed by the people and the noises. It's life or death to like bring headphones. Number three, you always mirror people's behavior back to them even when you don't want to. So if you're like, oh, I'm not in competition with this person or I'm not intentionally being an asshole, but my facial expressions are expressing that, it's because you're mirroring how they're acting. Um, number four, you always spend time in the dark. Natural lighting is okay, but you get overstimulated by lights. And number five, you're always told you're a good listener because you mirror people's actions back to them. Roger, you're a good listener. Yeah. You tend to spend a lot of time in the dark. <laughs> it's these completely made up kind of symptoms. Are any of those actual, I don't know, um, that one was for autism, but are any of those at all symptoms of what would traditionally be autism? Is, is someone just opening up a, a diagnostic manual and just pulling out a couple of things and reading them. Yeah. I mean, what they're doing is they're taking what could be a potential sign of autism and turning it in to something that everyone would experience from time to time. Like, first of all, no, you know, putting on headphones as a way of blocking out the world is not a sign of autism. In fact, I remember back in, 2009, I was on the campus of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And it was like the first time I was back in like an undergrad campus because I went to Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, which was graduate school, medical school. And I think when I was walking on campus, 75% at that time of, um, of students walking around would have some form of a headphone in. Mm-hmm. And that was like new for me. Like, oh, this is new. This never happened before, right? So it's quite common for people to pop in headphones or do all ear, the time. Yeah, AirPods. And yeah. you know, I was up in New York City not too long ago. You know, most people are going through the city in their day. Maybe they're listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. the radically genuine podcast, <laughs> <laughs> or other things. No doubt. So if you're young and you're vulnerable and you're impressionable, you're seeking out some way to define yourself or even try to understand yourself. And this is what's challenging is they believe or they're conditioned to believe that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And when we think about adolescent development, it's quite normal for you to question who you are and what you're experiencing is normal in comparison to others. Now this is like people can become hypersensitive to this because it's in your face all the time. And that introspection and kind of judging your internal experience as if it's some sort of a disorder, that's concerning, right? And this is why we're having these rise 
in these diagnoses and this identification with mental illness and going into uh, mental health outpatient practices. Now, I think the savvy clinician can understand when, when somebody's just repeating symptoms from a book. Um, but I don't think that a lot of our clinicians, especially young clinicians, are really trained at a really high level and are sophisticated enough to be able to use deductive reasoning and clinical questioning to be able to shift conversations back to get information and to test things out. Like we are in this healthcare world where people are just coming in quickly and say, I'm experiencing this, I'm experiencing this, I'm experiencing that. And you're, you're hit with a diagnosis, some sort of treatment plan and trying to move forward. So this is the danger of this. But aren't a lot of um, young doctors and, and therapists, aren't they trained to be, to affirm? Oh, good point. <laughs> really good point. Um, yeah, this affirmative kind of care model where anyone who comes in to see you, you are validating and affirming what they're experiencing yeah. as ways one of building a relationship and as a way of decreasing kind of self-judgment, accepting what the person is telling you is as truth and kind of valuing that person in front of you. Now, to apply that 100% of the time without considering other potential functions or hypotheses to what might be happening is really dangerous. It's actually taking away the clinician's ability to critically evaluate and think. Mm -hmm. And I posted something in, on around this on Twitter months ago, um, back when we were talking about social contagion effect. And I had a psychiatrist create, ironically, a TikTok video about me. <laughs> you know? Oh, I, just, oh, I remember I that. Remember, I wish yeah. I would have brought that up, right? <laughs> and it's like this idea that I am completely invalidating somebody's experience by bringing up these cultural phenomenons. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you can work in the mental health field unless you are really attentive to what is happening in your culture around you. And that was scary for me, that a child psychiatrist would accept at face value verbally what a child would kind of tell you about what they're experiencing. Now, first and foremost, what's really important, and I feel like we've gone away from this, when I was trained as a clinical psychologist, I was trained that you must get multiple reports from multiple environments to be able to confirm diagnoses. Meaning, you know, I, I'm going to get what the, what the teenager or the kid is presenting with, what I'm observing, what they're reporting. But then I want to test that out. What's the school reporting? What's their parents reporting? Right? Let me get some other data and information to try to create a case conceptualization. What about when it's a young adult? Or a young adult. How do you, how do you go about getting other uh, points of view, other stories or whatever? Like what, workplace environment, that kind of stuff? Well, no, I wouldn't say workplace environment. It tends to be family. So if, you're, if it's an adult, it could be a spouse. Um, if you're a young adult or a teenager, obviously it's the parents. Um, and if they're in school, you just ask for a release, maybe talk to a school counselor or so forth. So you have to get permission from your client. You do. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, gotcha. and that's just, uh, you know, that's kind of standard. Mm -hmm. Also with like psychiatry or a medical professional. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that you are coordinating care. I never get contacted by these psychiatrists or medical professionals when I'm working with a young person or a teenager. And it's part of the systemic problem that exists in our, in our healthcare system. I, I saw a recent uh, study regarding uh, our primary care. Do you know what the average time a doctor will spend with somebody in primary care? Six minutes. Close. Eight minutes. Ooh. Yeah. Hmm. So you're talking about a, a healthcare system that's fast food style, right? Get them in, get them out. It's almost like herding cattle. So you try to get the quickest diagnosis possible and move forward with some sort of referral or treatment plan. I mean, we were referring this in a previous podcast where we were talking about kind of like quick protocols and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, so this is really problematic because you're not going to have that time for coordination of care, 
identification of hypotheses, testing that out, and so forth. And too many of these doctors don't realize that the symptoms or the presentations that are being provided, especially if they're coming straight out of a DSM, that's got to be a red flag, you know, because you can easily bring that up on the internet. If they're just talking about their experience in, in terms of like symptoms or behaviors, they're feeding right in to the problems that exist in our healthcare centers. Um, do we want to play another one? ADHD popped up. So I'm just curious uh, what you think about, um, we've had a couple of podcasts on this. I'm, I want to see what this video says. So I'm going to pull this up. Okay. Yeah. People think having ADHD just means you can't focus, but it's so much more than that. Here are nine signs that you may have ADHD and we're going to remember them with the acronym FAST MINDS. F is for forgetful. Do you forget what people have told you or where you put things? Do you need reminders for everyday things or do you miss appointments? A is for achieving below potential. Do you feel like you should be getting better grades in school or you should be farther ahead in your career? S stands for stuck in a rut. Are you having a hard time moving ahead in your life? Are you constantly playing catch up instead of living life how you want to? T is for time challenged. Are you often late? Hmm? Do you underestimate the amount of time things actually take? M stands for motivationally challenged. Are you a procrastinator or do things last minute? Do you wait for the pressure of a deadline to get things done? I stands for impulsive. Do you do things without anticipating the consequences? Do you blurt things out in conversation? By the way, if you're still with me on this video, good job. N stands for novelty seeking. Are you often bored? Do you say yes to new obligations when you're already too busy? D stands for distractible. Do sights, sounds, thoughts, or lower priority activities distract you from what you should be doing? And finally, S is for scattered. Are things messy in your personal space? Is there chaos in your desk, house, or car? If any of these things sound familiar, you might have ADHD, and I'd highly recommend to check out the book, Fast Minds, How to Thrive If You Have ADHD. And of course, follow me for more. Uh, there's that <laughs> ending, follow me for more. That was... I. I believe I have ADHD. My wife has ADHD. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I hate this stuff. I mean, I, <laughs> I loathe it, right? Because he just, def he just defined an adolescent brain. You know? Fast like, mind? Well, like novelty seeking, impulsivity in the terms of like speaking out and without thinking ahead of consequences, kind of distractible or scattered, motivationally challenged. You know, the concern about this is that a number of people believe that their poor achievement or their struggles are related to some illness. Hey, everybody, ADHD was made up. Like, let, let me put it out there. ADHD is not a legitimate illness. It was designed for a small portion of people whose brains worked in a certain way. There's a concept called neurodiversity. You know, neurodiversity has to be developed as a concept and an, and an idea in response to these ridiculous trends, right? Your brain has been adapted over centuries to survive in, in the environments in which you live, right? The brain is developed to be able to attend to rel relative stimuli. We live in a fast-paced world. We are exposed to constant stimuli. It's why we can drive. You know, it's why we can drive on a highway and make decisions so quickly and automatically, right? There's so much stimuli that's going on, you know, when you're driving a car. But when you grow up in a world where you're playing video games, listening to TikTok, texting, and doing a number of other things, you're brain is really being conditioned, it's developed to respond to this multiple stimuli quickly, right? And so when you don't have that, you might feel bored. It's like the brain is kind of craving kind of that, that dopamine kind of response or reaction. So we see generate, we have a whole generation of kids living in screens and so forth who are going to have a very difficult time um, responding appropriately in environments that are not stimulating. And so that makes 
makes it a challenge to be able to potentially even achieve at a level that your school environment or maybe your parents have expectations to if you are living in that environment. Um, and I think it's going to be really challenging motivationally to be able to read history or to read in English when you're playing these video games that are um, really emotionally stimulating and complex and cognitively challenging. Uh, they could be like uh, first-person kind of shooter games or so forth. There's competition. It's kind of mimicking... Um, you know, being in almost like a warfare situation. So there's like, there's a, there's an emotional kind of component to it. Um, then you have these TikTok videos and you have Instagram and it's the constant, you know, uh, scrolling and swiping mm -hmm. back and forth, which gives you like a dopamine hit after a dopamine yeah. hit. So your response to that isn't disordered. And that's like so important. Like how you then evolve and develop doesn't mean you're disordered. Your brain is actually working exactly as it's supposed to it's adapting to its environment and so you have clowns like this who's trying to financially benefit from these labels or diagnosis which he knows nothing about the history he's not a clinician he may have wrote that book though I don't know. I, I'll, I'll look into it but because yeah. he even in the comments he's telling people to read the book so he has some type of connection there and we go on, let's go into the business part of this because think of the three major platforms for video sharing. You've got YouTube, you have Instagram, probably Facebook, but we'll just focus on Instagram. And then you, you have TikTok. So YouTube's been around for a long time. YouTube is a search engine. That's all it is. It's a search engine, even the way it's structured, cinematic, you know, horizontal. People spend much more time investing in quality producing it to be visually inspiring and also engaging. And it's usually a little bit of a longer content. Instagram started off as a very visual place. People were posting images, artwork. So the people that are on Instagram are mostly, mostly scrolling, scrolling to look at visual inspiration. And now they're getting these videos and they're usually produced a little more high quality. TikTok started off and it's mostly was just people taking pictures of themselves with their friends and it's very low quality. It's very entry level. The amount of time that somebody puts into a video can be done in less than an hour. They're just basically holding it up, recording themselves, and then putting some text over it. So the business model behind anything is if you're not paying for it, you are the business model. So your eyeballs is what's generating the revenue for these companies. So first, think about that. YouTube has a business model where it's very easily understood. If you produce great content and you're in their uh, revenue sharing, you're getting the views on your videos. They're giving you a small percentage of that revenue that's generated from your, your video. When it comes to Instagram and TikTok, it's all about selling your own content. If you've got a book, if you have a product, um, or if you want to be an influencer and work with brands. TikTok has done something different. TikTok developed what they call a creator fund. So they're encouraging people to create as much content as possible and put it out there. And they have a fund of a couple million dollars, but they don't tell you how they're going to disperse that fund. So the people that are in that space believe that that money is going to be distributed based on one thing, your ability to create a video that's going to get a lot of views and go viral. And then that money might potentially get dispersed to you. So people on TikTok are mostly following a trend, looking to see what's getting a lot of eyeballs, what people are being exposed to. And then they try and mimic that and try and step it up, maybe creating a video that they think could be a little bit better. So because it's so easy to create content in TikTok, I think what we're seeing is a lot of people in the creative space that may be actors, that may be young and just creative quickly creating something that they believe is following what they've been exposed to. And they're seeing a video like this, that's getting 27,000 views or 27,000 hearts. And what they want to do is create something very similar. And then you just have this enormous amount of content that is created for one specific topic. And everybody's competing, trying to be the one that gets exposed next and goes viral for the hope of maybe getting some money 
from TikTok that will support them in the future. That's the whole business model of TikTok. Scary, very easy to get into, but that's why there's so much crap on there. And that's all it is, is crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a case like this, all right, going back to Roger, this individual, do you believe he is he has everyone's best interest about ADHD yeah. at heart? Or is this, you know, this is the garbage that puts out there. There's no actual investment in you know, caring about people's lives. He just wants views. He just wants hits. And basically, you know what the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is? So like if you're really good at shooting a pistol and you you know, you say you're gonna hit right dead center. Those of us that are bad at it though, we could just sit there and shoot and at one point, there'll be a cluster somewhere off of the target. And I can just circle, hey, look, I've got all these symptoms. I've got all these, right? I can just circle and believe, oh my gosh, that's me. I'm ADHD. I can sit there and in, in generalizations that he's using, I'm watching this and I really do believe, wow, this is what's wrong with me. If I'm going through a tough part of my life or if somebody has said something or my grades are going down, I can simply watch this and say, wow. And then that could bring up a conversation with um, parents or a therapist. Well, actually, I think he's a victim. I'm not going to blame the people who were exposed to this in culture. This is a consequence to the medicalization of the human experience that was purposely driven by both the medical establishment and its alliance with the pharmaceutical industry. You know, there was a period in time where they tried to identify mental illness as a brain condition, similar to any other medical disorder. It would provide credibility to the psychiatric community and medical professionals. And so they developed these quote unquote illnesses and tried to push this onto society. Now, obviously there's a financial benefit by trying to create drugs to treat it. We've kind of at nauseum kind of gone over this brought experts on And so someone like him actually probably believes that his own creativity, his tendency to get bored with certain things that, you know, maybe society is telling him he should focus on is means that there's something wrong with him and that he's over identifying with that diagnosis. Now he's smart enough to be able to try to benefit off that in some way through getting likes, which is another dopamine rush and try to get followers, and he can create a career around this. So he's financially incentivized to be able to present things in this way, and he is now identifying with this diagnosis. Now, this is my concern. I don't think it benefits any individual to develop a personal identity around a DSM diagnosis. In fact, there's professionals like myself, there's researchers who are really motivated to actually throw out the DSM and start over by talking about um, people who are struggling with their mental health to be on a spectrum or a continuum and to really limit or decrease the number of kind of conditions or disorders and try to understand it more from a scientific perspective using actual research and strong science to understand the range of normal that exists. And that's really important is there's such a range of normal, the concept of neurodiversity. I remember in one of my classes, one of the professors said, you know what, I really want the guy who's working at the nuclear power plant to be a worrier. Well, what does that mean? Well, the way that that person's mind works as an engineer or someone, you want it to be able to attend to and create to all the possible problems while they're on their shift or they're doing their job to prevent a mass catastrophe, right? There's this normal aspect of the way our brains work that in this beautiful way allows society all to kind of connect. There's people whose brains work in a way that create. There's people whose uh, brain work in a certain way to um, solve problems. There's there's engineers, there's artists, there's teachers, there's helpers, right? There's people who like to work with their hands. That's that beautiful way that everything integrates in the way that it's supposed to. The idea of some of these mental illnesses are a very restricted and narrow way of looking at the human experience. And then the more you begin to internally 
criticize or assess or evaluate or judge, whether it's your attention or an emotion or a sensation, we know that's going to intensify itself and become a problematic mental health concern. So the way that you actually think about your own experience matters. So that's like what happens when when you're going to work with somebody as a clinical psychologist, we want to be really, really attentive to how that person thinks about their experience. And this is the problem with videos like this. It helps shape a narrative. It, we create a story about what our life is or about who we are. And that shaping of the story then gets presented to a mental health professional or a medical professional. And then those people attach to that story as if it's real and they give a label to it and they give a diagnosis to it. And then they provide a treatment to it. So that's why, you know, I honestly believe all of this kind of works in a way that has created a system of care, at least in the United States and what I think of throughout the Western world, that is creating more harm. So what do you say to the people that advocate on behalf of social networks that this is where people can find a community and find out how to get support and find out how to get the proper treatment? Because um, that is kind of the language that is, is used, that we're, we're finally giving people, we're destigmatizing it and giving people a place where they can see that they're, they're not that they're like others and that there's a, there's a solution, that there's a, a, a plan ahead that they can get better. Well, there's a lot of assumptions kind of when you, when you make that statement is that anyone who's going through a difficult time or is vulnerable or young, it's this idea that they can go get treatment as if that's what they need, number mm -hmm. one. That there is an effective treatment, number two. And that sense of community or attachment to that as a form of identity is actually healthy and helpful. So if, if we take certain ideas, one, this, is community important? Yeah, it's very important. Human beings are relational. We need to be socially connected. But socially connected to screens does not seem to have the same benefit. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pseudo connection, right? And a lot of times that people are feeling less alone, not because they're actually connected with somebody, but because they're watching somebody on a video or they're texting, that does not seem to have the same positive benefit. Second point to that is what is actually driving that person's struggle? I tend to believe it's more about loneliness. It's about believing that you're different than others. It's the resulting sadness and anxiety that might come from that isolation. It's not knowing how to find that connection or how to engage in the world in an effective way to get your needs met. And I don't like to think about a struggle as an illness or a disorder because if you think about it as an opportunity or something that you need to do to address problems in your life, it's a point of transformation. So I'm really concerned with that whole medical idea that you know you just communicated. Mm -hmm. Like we're decreasing stigma, we're, we're getting the right help. Mm -hmm. All available evidence would say, you know, first of all, you're getting steered down the direction to be provided a diagnosis and potentially a drug under the disguise that that's actually going to improve your quality of life. Now, one other area is the doctors putting videos on TikTok. So it's almost like you, you move away from the influencer strategy and you're going to a professional. A professional is now engaging in this space and, and, and trying to inform and educate people in a style that mimics what is on those platforms. Um, there are some, and I, there's one here for bipolar disorder. Yeah, click on that because that's an adult. It's Dr. Tracy Marks. I don't know who Dr. Tracy Marks is. Bipolar disorder can first show itself as depression, mania, or hypomania. There's some signs that your depression may really be bipolar disorder, even if you haven't received that diagnosis yet. You and your doctor might want to think about whether or not your illness is really your depression that you're seeing at the moment is really part of a bipolar illness. 
And why does this matter? Because the way that we treat bipolar disorder is different than the way that we treat depression. So here's five signs that you may really be on the bipolar spectrum. Number one, your first depressive episode occurs before age 20. Number two, you don't get better with antidepressants, and in some cases, you may even get worse. Number three, you have a family member with bipolar disorder. Number four, you have three or more depressive of episodes in a five-year time span. Number five, you take a mood stabilizer and have a full recovery within a month. Bipolar disorder. All right, hold on a second here. If anybody knows Dr. Tracy Marks from TikTok. She might have a national presence somewhere outside of TikTok. We, we have to find her because I find that so completely irresponsible. She only has two videos. Up, she's a psychiatrist. So She's got 169,000 followers. Yeah, that is so compl- that was so irresponsible. First of all, she's, you know, falling right down the the path of what we see too many in in psychiatry doing. They're talking about things in terms of illnesses and depressive episodes without s- strong definition. So the idea that you, you know, you're actually this is young people here that you're is your target audience. And when you're talking about depressive episodes before the age of 20, do you really think that teenagers know what depressive episodes are? They don't. Mm. They don't even understand the, what the feeling of sadness is anymore. They talk about depression um, in, in terms of a normal kind of experience that anyone would go through. My depression just meant you were sad. Like I hear teenagers consistently talking about their sadness as my depression. So if you count like three or four or five, and this is all made up, there's no science around this bullshit. So you just say like, well, you had three depressive episodes before the age of 20. Well, this could be a bipolar illness. Think what it does to a young person who has no idea what she's talking about, right? So a bipolar illness. Bipolar illness is traditionally something that was quite serious, right? It was a way to categorize this idea of mania. And mania is really impairing. And there's a, you know, a, a response to that mania. People would often go through a manic episode and then absolutely crash. We don't really understand um, the ideology of it and like the why some people experience it. But traditionally, like 80% before we had drugs like quote unquote mood stabilizers, those who were hospitalized for bipolar, like close to 80% of those would have only one episode. But anyway, you're just like mass producing this idea to get people to be confused around their own uh, their own emotional experience. And of course, she talks about her treatments in terms of drugs. And so if you have this depressive illness for teenagers, it could be just sad, and it's balanced with maybe not feeling sad, well, then you could view your normal experience or just having a positive mood or having some energy. You can then interpret that as hypomania, this concept of mania on a, on a spectrum. And so I really think that people like Dr. Tracy Marks are harmful and they're perpetrating a lot of these ideas to a vulnerable population. And it's why we see these rising rates of bipolar diagnosis in young people when it would have never met that criteria 30, 40, 50 years ago. Is she benefiting in some way financially from this? Yes, she's selling books. (laughs) So, I mean, let's go back. It's, It's a platform. Your eyeballs are basically the whole reason for this platform existing. And if you're going to be on the platform, it's to sell a product, affiliate yourself with a brand to try and get them to pay you or to do something so extreme that you're going to go viral and you're going to get paid through TikTok. So that's all it is. So she's creating a 60 second video that's cut and edited in a way that everything else on TikTok is. It's fast paced. It's going through a list because lists are stupid and digestible when people click on that stuff. And then it directs you back to buy her books on Amazon or t-shirts and things like that. And it's her recurring revenue stream right there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when you, you talk to some of the old, uh, not talk to, or you just listen to some of the old psychiatrists who were in the early days of the DSM development. Now, the purpose of that was to have some construct for professionals to communicate with each other. They, many will recognize that those diagnoses don't have strong scientific validity, but yet 
They're just a, a way to articulate and communicate a cluster of kind of symptoms or reactions in order to drive a direction and how you help that person. Boy, has that just gotten completely out of control where people believe that these are discrete and separate medical illnesses with scientific validity. And that's the sad thing about this. Bipolar disorder doesn't mean what bipolar disorder was 50 years ago. It has now developed its own meaning. So anybody who's experiencing intense emotions in any way or any dysregulated episode, if they're exposed to this propaganda and they go to the wrong medical professional, they're going to receive a label of bipolar disorder with high frequency because that's how it's going to be communicated. So medical professionals, psychological professionals, everyone in the mental health field, you have to be aware of how these videos are influencing how your client or, or patient is going to describe their experience to you. Yeah, because I, it's the first place a lot of people go to get the information to self-diagnose themselves. And then they say all the things that they need to say that a doctor will say, well, those are all the things that, you know, I'm checking my list. You've, you've hit them all. You clearly have this. Let's get into like, I think the problem and the real problem is our, our healthcare system. Right? I mean, you have, a, you have a doctor that is probably over $100,000 in debt because of student loans got paid nothing while they're in their residency and then they're out in the free world and they're finally starting to start their own practice and get reimbursed through our health insurance model, which doesn't pay doctors anything, which is the reason why they sit down with a client or a patient in a, in a normal uh, general practitioner for eight minutes because the only way you can generate enough revenue through the reimbursements from the healthcare industry is to make sure that you're seeing enough patients or clients in a day to pay your nurses, to pay your office, and then it's just not enough. So then you have doctors that are, are going to write a book and they're going to hope to sell the book to hopefully make things ends meet. And then they're like, well, the book needs to sell. I need to get on these platforms and create a one minute video or a 30 second video that's going to generate enough eyeballs to get clicks to possibly sell my book. And they're probably working with production companies that are guiding them on the things that work. And that's why that video looks the way that it does. I'm not going to say that Dr. Tracy Marks is an evil person, but I think she's fallen into the system that exists today that is broken. And that's our United States yeah. national health care system. I don't want to say that she's evil, but I, I do think we have to talk about a high ethical standard. And to meet that high ethical standard, you have to be aware of how you're communicating um, and how how this can be interpreted. That's and the idea of exploitation, right? She's yeah. exploiting, the platform is exploiting a certain group of people that are now exposed to this and are vulnerable and are now self-diagnosing, which is causing a whole bunch of problems. And from an ethical perspective, somebody needs to take a step back and say, at what point am I putting myself over the welfare of others? Such a good point. And when you think about the, the medium of... Uh, TikTok, you're talking about, I don't know, like 30-second, one-minute clips. Something as complex as a medical condition or your own mental health being dumbed down in a 30-second or one-minute clip for a vulnerable population who's going to be on that is so incredibly harmful, dangerous, ignorant, throw the word, whatever exists out there. And I want to go back to your comment on the healthcare system because you made some really good points. I don't know, and I haven't studied this, but we know in our region, the major hospital networks have bought out all the primary care centers. Yeah. So you have more and more kind of middleman involved in this all the way up to the top. So the primary care doctors, which I think close to 80% of all psychiatric drugs are being prescribed in primary care centers, they're the real victims of this because they do accrue all that debt through going to medical school. And there, the income for a primary care doctor is not rising at the rate of other specialists. We have uh, 
obviously an increase in, in inflation. So the, the money that you do make isn't going as far. There's a lot of different costs that you have to pay. And the model is being driven. It's a sick care model to get them in, get them out. And the more people you see, the more revenue you're going to generate. And then with the insurance care model, you know, they have their own separate kind of business model and they're going to make money by denying claims Mm -hmm. or by denying tests. So really it's kind of a center that kind of, it's a system that kind of feeds off of itself in a way that harms the, the patient. And these videos, when I think about it, are a way for people to get information because they're not getting that information from sources that are valid. If you don't have a relationship with your own doctor um, and you don't have enough time to ask questions and they don't have enough time to do adequate research, there's a lot of information that's being left out. And generations ago, your primary care physician knew your entire family. You know, there was a, a relationship that was built and you trusted that person. And there was human connection involved. And you made decisions based on the health, um, based on your own health, welfare, and that of your family, based on the trust that you gave to that physician. And I feel like that's kind of gotten eroded in our current culture because of this fast food healthcare model. You're not going to develop the relationship with the physician. In fact, it's very challenging to get the same person over and over again if you go into your healthcare centers i mean you might deal with the physician that day or another person in his or her group or a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner and they're getting their information from quick notes that they're putting into a system so it's really become a a dumbed down um liquidated kind of approach to, to you know symptom management and this fits right into it and I don't know all the the, the solutions because that's kind of above my my pay grade, mm-hmm. um, but I can I know what the problems are, and in some ways that people are gonna who are working in the healthcare system, mental health, physical health, are gonna have to somehow detach from the way of currently doing things from and make it more of a cash kind of system where people who are really interested in their their health can spend time with somebody and get get the tests that they require to be able to really evaluate what might be happening with their health and their mental health instead of going for these quick symptom checklists and pills. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.